It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today, we've got Chris Jones. He's with Cannabis Express, the founder of Cannabis Express. We're going to talk about everything that is the Canadian marketplace, retail, uh, behavioral changes and all of that. But I uh, want to introduce Chris. So thanks for being with The Talking Hedge. Chris, how are you? Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. Doing well. How about yourself? Doing good, man. Um, just, just relaxing after 420. Uh, quite the week, quite the year. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got in the industry, what is Cannabis Express, all that good stuff. Great. So I'll go back a couple of years. So while I was doing my MBA, I was looking for uh, a job. And at the time around 2018, 2017, there wasn't a lot of cannabis opportunities aside from you know large cultivation companies. Uh, so then I found uh, a company called Origin House. So it was publicly traded, um, offices in Toronto. And they were looking for someone to join the team. So I joined there. Uh, I was there for close to two years. And while I was there, we bought uh, five companies, mostly in the U.S. So I was traveling back and forth from Canada to the U.S., looking at different companies in California to buy, uh, ranging from cultivation to distribution, manufacturing. And then from that, we, uh, we acquired a retail company, a uh, vape retail company in Canada and Ontario, the largest vape retailer at the time called 180 Smoke. And the plan with that acquisition was to convert as many of the retail vape stores into cannabis stores. Uh, then I went on to, uh, we ended up doing a deal with one of the first round lottery winners in Ontario. So Ontario, um, originally they were going to you know, have it an open market system, then they changed it to government run stores, then they changed it to uh, a lottery based system, where there, you know, you'd pay a little bit of money, you'd enter in your name, some information, and then, uh, there, you know, you'd wait a month, and then they would announce the winners of the lottery on who could actually get the license to open up the store. So we did a deal with one of the first round winners. And then from that, uh, made a lot of relationships with the licensing body, the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario. And I saw a lot of opportunity in opening up cannabis retail stores. Uh, then our company, the one I worked for at the time, was acquired by a much larger U.S. Um, multi-state operator called Cresco Labs. So when that deal was announced, it was the largest U.S. M&A transaction um, at the time. So it was about $1.1 billion, uh, the total deal size. So from that, uh, obviously, companies, while you're, you're being bought yourself, so a lot of the deal flow gets put on hold while you're going through the, you know, buying and integration process. So then uh, I saw an opportunity to, uh, you know, start opening up retail stores in Ontario because the government um, from having a first lottery, then a second lottery, they changed it to a first come first serve process. So when that was announced, I decided that I, you know, I thought it'd be a good idea to start a new company and uh, apply for some of these licenses. So I applied for the license at the beginning um, when it first opened up the first day and uh, applied for that. Then we had, or I had a couple months before uh, the second license application went in. So basically in Ontario, how it works is there's two different licenses you need. So the first license is called the retail operator license. So that one uh, was the first license that opened up for anyone to apply to. Is basically uh, a license that gives you the ability to open up to 75 stores in Ontario. Then uh, we had about a three-month window before the second license application opened up, which is called the Retail Store Authorization License, and that is the site-specific license. 
So basically, if you have a corporation, you need the ROL, the first license, and then for each individual location uh, that you want to open, you need to apply for an RSA, the retail store retail store authorization. So uh, during that time, I raised uh, close to a million dollars from a public company and a group of private shareholders. So I raised raised a million dollars, uh, opened up uh, four of the first approximately 100 retail stores in Ontario. Um, our run rate at the time was close to 15 million, uh, hired about 30 people. And this is all from, from home uh, during, during COVID, you know, which, is, which is pretty crazy. So I decided uh, our part of the strategy was to avoid opening up stores in Toronto, um, just because of how competitive I thought it would be and because of um, you know, how, mostly competition and the fact that a lot of the landlords um, think that, you know, you're opening up a cannabis store, you must have a lot of money, we're going to charge you, you know, double the market rate. So I avoided Toronto for those two reasons uh, and opened up, uh, you know, the second store, so the second store in Barrie, uh, the first store in a town called Innisville, the first store in a town called Bradford, and then a, another store in Barrie. So I opened up the four and then my partners at the time made me an offer to uh, buy me out. So I sold my ownership uh, back to the company that or the company and in, um, group of private investors that originally made the million dollar investment in the business. So I sold that back to them a couple months ago in September. And uh, as soon as that was done, I decided to, uh, you know, do it all again, but, you know, much better. Just because from, you know, looking at the industry, I saw that a lot of customers who shop at these stores, at least right now um, in Canada, or, you know, they're going in and they're not really mentioning specific brands that they want you know most of the questions that customers have in walking into a store um well when they were allowed to walk into a store at the time so obviously stores are, are closed now and only allow curbside pickup but they'd come in they say hey um you know i need help sleeping uh what's the highest thc percentage flower you have um you know i don't want to get too high with something that's high in cbd um i want to buy a chocolate i want a gummy you know questions like that so from you know hearing hearing all those questions and really learning about what what customers want and you know how they actually you know walk through the store what they look at what they touch what they do i thought that it would make a lot more sense to go the opposite direction of a lot of you know the retailers that i see opening up stores in in canada and ontario you know a lot of the stores i see are large format um you know 2000 to 5000 square feet they have, you know, 400 to 1,000 different uh, SKUs or products, and they just, they, you know, they have 10, 20, 30 people working at the store. So I want to go the complete opposite direction, uh, which brings me to the new business that I started, um, you know, in September, which is called Cannabis Express. The idea behind this business is to open up a chain of tiny, uh, tiny stores across Ontario. Uh, the first store actually opened up last week in Branson, Ontario. Uh, the store is 353 square feet in size, and the retail uh, square footage, so the actual retail space for customers, is 80 square feet. So this store, I believe, is the smallest uh, licensed cannabis store in the country. And uh, this store in particular, and as well as our other stores, um, we're going to be stocking 50 to 60 cannabis SKUs, so keeping the you know assortment limited. Um, all the products will be on two different menu boards. You'll come in. And you'll see everything in front of you. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to speak to someone, the salesperson for 10, 20 minutes. You can if you, you know, if you want to, but we, you know, the the purpose of everything is, you know, speed and efficiency. So customers come in, they pick what they want, 
Um, we stock new products every week. So, you know, it's not going to be the same stuff every time you come in and, you know, getting customers in and out as fast as possible. And since the stores are so small and we're able to, you know, staff less people, the cost of these products will be a lot lower. So how the system works in Ontario is the uh, AGCO, the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario, they're the licensing body. So they're the ones that uh, make sure your store is compliant and they grant you the license. Then once you have that license, you take it to the Ontario Cannabis Store, um, which is the provincial distributor. So the government in Ontario is the uh, distributor of cannabis. So you go to them, you say, hey, here's my license. Uh, you go through an onboarding process. And then every week uh, you have access to their online portal where you can see uh, what products are in stock and then you put in your order. So it's, it's interesting in Ontario because you know, it sort of favors having a fewer number of stores versus some of the larger companies. You know, so if you think about traditional retail, you'll have, you know, companies like, for example, Walmart, you know, they have a lot of stores, they purchase a lot of products, same with, you know, a Costco, where they get volume discounts because of how much product they order. So for cannabis in Ontario, it's completely the opposite. If you have one store or a hundred stores, you're paying the exact same price uh, for product. So you don't get volume discounts depending on, you know, how many stores you have or how much product you're ordering. So that system, you know, favors companies that have, you know, less than five stores. But then obviously when you have, you know, a lot more stores, it's, you know, not the best. But being able to, uh, you know, keep costs as low as we are, we're able to then pass that, you know, those savings on to the customers. So we can actually, you know, charge less for the exact same products that, you would go into, you know, a store that, you know, is worth a million dollars that the people spent on it and, you know, buy those same products for less. So right now uh, we have the first store in Brampton that just opened up a week ago. And then we have uh, our next store opens up in a town called Oxbridge uh, this summer. And then we have uh, two other stores in Wasega Beach and Hillsdale also opening up this summer. So we'll have four, uh, four stores open by the end of the summer. And then uh, the plan is to get uh, 10 stores open by the end of the year. So right now I'm very focused on opening up, uh, opening up these stores, keeping costs down as low as possible, and then, uh, you know, passing those savings on to, on to customers when we do open up. Mm -hmm. That's great. There's um, quite a few different opportunities up in Washington state, you know, uh, where I'm located at, where we have like you mentioned, 2,000 SKUs on the wall, and it's daunting. So for people to go in there and try to figure out what they want is crazy. Versus, um, oh shoot, I'm going to show you this. Uh, the, the smallest um, dispensary that we have in Washington State is a couple hundred feet. So looking at uh, this log cabin, I was just here at this uh, dispensary here in the middle of nowhere. And what I noticed is there was two older women that were in the store and then I was charging my car. There's actually a charging station <laughs> right here too. And um, while I was there for an hour, there was only two other people, both of them also older uh, women looking at, um, at, at cannabis products. So there's an opportunity to have a small store in the middle of nowhere and still make money. Um, this is literally me on one side of the building and the bud tender on the other side of the building uh, taking a selfie. So very, very small store, but it, it, if you know what products are supposed to be selling, you don't really need those large stores that are daunting with 2000 SKUs. So there's, um, there's room for everybody to be involved. So it's interesting to, to hear your, your take. Wow. 
Funny. Yeah, that, that that's exactly it. I don't think you, you know, obviously there's, yeah, cust- I was saying customers right now, you know, there are certain customers who want to go into a much larger store and browse through a thousand products and, you know, really be taken on a tour. But I think for the most part, most customers right now, especially the ones that are converting over from the illicit market, they don't really want to go into, you know, this, this huge store. They want to go in, buy what they want and leave. Um, and then even looking at now with, you know, COVID and the lockdowns and, people not even being allowed in these retail stores it doesn't you know it doesn't make sense at all for people to be building these gigantic stores and then you know the customers can't come inside so some of the locations i'm looking at right now will just be pickup only so customers can show up outside go on our website put in their order and then just pick it up and leave take a a closer look at some of those trends up in canada this is a couple reports i wanted to bring up from headset um, looking at some of the, the Canadian um, sales trends. Uh, so looking at the data for, um, for sales, it looks like there's about eight, uh, $250 million in total sales with an average daily sales of around $8 million, um, And that's fourth quarter of last year. So not, not too shabby, not too bad uh, up there. I think um, California is basically dominating uh, more than what you guys are doing, but you know, there's not as many people, obviously. So I wanted to take a look at the sales data, but also what's happening with the post lockdown. So the lockdown impacts, you can see some of the stores, I think closed. Um, you had mentioned some of the fiasco with the, this um, government stores in Ontario. And so maybe you can just tell us a little bit about what you were seeing with the lockdown and the impacts that we had with the the pandemic uh, last year? Yeah, it's been it's been challenging because there are obviously stores that you know the lockdown happened and the sales pick up a lot more because people have more uh, more cash to spend. So you know if you're if you're home all day and you you know you you're not spending money on on going out and other things like that, you have more disposable income to spend on you know cannabis, alcohol subscriptions whatever so people are definitely spending at least the beginning of the lockdown more money um, on cannabis but then looking at you know from a retailer's point of view I've seen that at least now for the past couple months retail sales have dropped between 40 to 50 percent since uh, people aren't allowed to actually come into the stores and this has been challenging because you know not only because sales are dropping but also the um, category mix of products people are buying is also very different so for a retailer usually the highest uh, product that you're going to sell in your store is going to be cannabis accessories so like bongs uh, rolling papers uh, you know vape hardware things like that and then now since people aren't even allowed to come into stores you know that uh, amount of accessories that people are buying dropped you know, on average from about 5% to less than one. So people aren't really coming into stores buying a, or sorry, not coming into stores, but people aren't really going online and, you know, buying a bong curbside pickup. So that's also been pretty uh, detrimental to retailers that the highest margin products are, you know, not, not moving anymore. But then, yeah, your point about California, obviously it's a, you know, a tricky comparison comparing California to Canada because, you know, they've had such a robust uh, medical system in place for such a long time. And then when they switched over to recreational, um, you know, legislation, it was a lot easier for them to change all the medical clinics into rec ones. Oh, yeah. And the population obviously is 
you know, I believe it's a bit larger in California than it is in Canada. So yeah, their, their system is a lot, is a lot different than obviously brands can, you know, they can advertise, you can have billboard signs, things like that. You can give products away for free. And then in Canada, um, depending on what province you're in, it's a lot more challenging and restrictive for, you know, companies and brands to advertise and really get customers to buy their products. Right. Well, they've also had a 50 year history of a really strong cannabis culture. Not that Vancouver hasn't, but, uh, you know, hate Ashbury is, is world famous for that, uh, the centralization of, of cannabis culture and community kind of starting from there. Uh, but I want to shift gears a little bit towards, um, consumer preference and behavioral changes and what we've seen as a result of the pandemic. You know, we can start with uh, California as an example with a $65 minimum order on purchasing. So online, like you mentioned, it's all curbside, um, or at least it was. Uh, California required a delivery, and so you can even go into the store. So $65 minimums on delivery was nice because it it forced you to spend $65. However, you're missing out on going into the store and seeing things you might not otherwise have. I'll break that down to like just grocery shopping. When I do online grocery shopping, I'm missing out on buying random stuff like sun-dried tomatoes, chocolate bars, magazines, all those like, uh, you know, impulse buying items. You don't really buy when you're, when you're online shopping, right? Well, for the most part, at least, you know, in terms of groceries. Right. Exactly. So for those of us that do use cannabis frequently, you know, um, yourself and, and other folks up in Canada looking at uh, percentage of using cannabis by generation from Gen Z all the way to the silent generation, um, 31% of cannabis consumers using cannabis more frequently as a result of the pandemic. I would expect that to be a lot higher just as what we saw last year with the increase in edibles, with a decrease in topicals and tinctures maybe a shift towards bulk instead of buying grams or buying ounces. Um, I would have thought that in Canada, that number would be a, a lot higher, but how much did the illicit market increase maybe is another question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Even uh, one interesting statistic I saw recently was the average age of the cannabis consumer um, before it was much lower and now it's going up to like mid to late thirties. So it's interesting to see that there's a lot more um, older customers, you know, being interested in cannabis and trying it out for the first time. And, you know, the products that they buy, like a lot of them I've seen come into the store and they're not, you know, like, for example, like my parents wouldn't come into a store and, you know, buy flour to roll up and smoke, but they would be interested in coming in and buying like a topical or a tincture, you know, those types of product categories. So it's interesting to see, you know, older, an older demographic who grew up in a time where, you know, cannabis was not legal and now they're, know getting interested in it again as well right so this report from the brightfield group is saying that although 31 percent of canadians are using it more frequently uh more than two-thirds are saying that it helped them deal with stress during the pandemic so obviously something that they're they're using whether it's by income or you know like you mentioned um not demographics but uh you know age um, everyone's using it, regardless of how much money they're making or how old they are. People are tending to, to use it more frequently as it's becoming more readily available. 2.0 has been out for over a year as people are switching from flour to concentrates, edibles, everything else, and usage rates are definitely going up by generation. So to your point, Gen Z uh, is going up 41% all the way to the silent generation, increasing their use 10%. Um, you just can't really get away from it at this point. 
Mm -hmm. So cannabis consumers are using five or more days a week, most likely to increase their usage amid the pandemic. So I think it's whether it's cannabis or chocolate or even alcohol, people are definitely going towards vices during times of, uh, you know, added stress. Um, but it looks like edibles, there was a 23% increase in that, but fewer were using inhalables probably because of some of that fear that had, that was surrounding the vape crisis that kind of was around the same time. People were afraid to use combustibles, pre-rolls, inhalables, going more towards edibles, um, kind of causing that behavioral change. People looking for um, safer products, I think. Yeah, definitely. Even my own consumption, I've definitely seen it, you know, shift since the pandemic has started, even just, you know, seeing, speaking to customers in the store and, you know, friends and, and others who are cannabis consumers, definitely their consumption has, uh, has gone up since the start of all this. Yeah, would you say that that's across the board from flour to edibles or is it specific? For me, I smoked a lot of flour to the point where I had to kind of cut back. I did sober October because I blew through a pound in just a matter of, you know, a month and a half or something silly. So I really had to kind of step back and use sober October as a, an excuse to reset my tolerance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, no, I think, I think across, across the board, you know, consumption's up on, on all product categories, but then, you know, going back to Canada and Ontario, there's some product categories that, you know, aren't as developed as others. Like for example, if you look at concentrates, um, the selection of concentrates that, or in stores isn't, you know, isn't the best right now. So those products are going over to the illicit market, which is unfortunate. And then, you know, categories like flour, pre-rolls, um, you know, vape pens, uh, the product assortment that we have right now in Ontario is very strong for those categories, but it's, you know, it's only a matter of time before, you know, more products come in, it gets more competitive, prices go down, and then customers start, uh, start switching over. Because I genuinely, genuinely believe that, you know, everyone, would rather, you know, purchase something from a licensed retailer that they know is tested versus, you know, getting it from some guy in a, you know, meeting him in a park or down the street, right? So it's, it's only it's only a matter of time. And it's, you know, similar to California and other places, right? It's, uh, you know, it'll, it'll just take time before people slowly convert over. Yeah, we all know a guy, right? We all know somebody who grows. And so it's easy to find a trusted dealer, you know, where I'm getting my pounds for $500. It's hard to go and pay $200 for an ounce at a retail store. So there needs to be a happy medium. You know, having said that, I don't buy uh, liquor out of, you know, the back of somebody's truck. Um, I don't know anybody who buys cigarettes out of, you know, the boot of a car, so at some point, you're going to go online and look for the best deals. Um, you're not going to go and just buy some illicit product eventually. But that price definitely has to come down to reality where you're not spending several hundred dollars on cannabis. You're going to have to compare that to what a pound of tobacco is, which is around 20 US dollars for a, a pound of tobacco. We need to get maximum, I would say, $50 for a pound of cannabis in order to really put a dent in the illicit market. Um, so, I mean, hopefully that'll come eventually, but it's, it's gonna take some time, I think. Uh, and the US needs to come on board with federal legalization for that to, to really uh, be implemented across the board. Um, with a small shop like you're planning on implementing, how important is it to um, 
offer not only online service and delivery, but incentives. Is it important to, to give daily deals online to trigger purchases or is it just a matter of offering, um, you know, a, a brand or, or the product? Um, what is it? is it? Is it a matter of deals or is it just a consistent? Oh, it's, it's, it's definitely both. So right now we're opting to not do delivery just because the, you know, the cost of it doesn't really make a lot of sense for us. But um, in terms of doing deals, it, it really is, especially in Canada, um, province specific because due to the legislation, uh, the legal framework, um, it is challenging for, you know, for brands and for retailers to actually give deals to customers. So you're not actually allowed to, um, you know, have messaging that will incentivize a purchase. So if you, so I know there, you know, there's some retailers that seen that have like, you know, buy an ounce, get a pre-roll for a dollar. Um, you know, deals like that are obviously great for customers, but you're not actually <laughs> technically allowed to do them. Um, mm -hmm. But then it's, it's challenging because if you go online, you see some of these illegal um, websites where, you know, you get, you get loyalty points, you get free, you know, you get free edibles, you get, you know, you get a lot of, of bonus, you know, bonus product for making purchases through them. So yeah, it, it definitely is challenging, you know, competing against the illicit market when they're able to, you know, do a lot of those things that licensed retailers aren't allowed to do. But I think it's just a matter of time before, you know, regulations change and things start to open up before we're, we're able to start doing some of those things, because that's, that's the real reason why, you know, a lot of people haven't converted over, um, you know, is because, you know, we're not allowed to do those things. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that, uh, the deals are for, um, for the everyday person, I think what we've seen here in the, in the states, or at least in, in Washington State and the West Coast, is that deals are actually for um, you know people that wouldn't otherwise come to the store. So uh, your your people who are coming there, no matter what, are, are already going there. The deals are really going to try to draw people from maybe other shops. Um, so yeah, interesting. Nonetheless, you're going to have to obviously uh, apply some discounts in order to get people and, and grow your market share. Um, in term, uh, speaking of market growth, looks like cannabis in 2020, last year market grew 118% despite the pandemic. So another Brightfield uh, report here showing that growth being driven by an increased retail openings. Um, so this isn't really based on same store sales, but just uh, uh, finally getting some stores to open up. I know Vancouver was really slow to that. Um, can you speak on why Vancouver and, and uh, Ontario were so slow to roll out? Did, and I'm curious if Hell's Angels has anything to do with Vancouver's uh, lowness and rollout. Do they have a grip on the industry or is that just fiction? Vancouver, yeah, Vancouver is an interesting place because I think a lot of the illegal cannabis that's grown in Canada does come from, from BC, from Vancouver. So I think the, you know, the illicit illegal growth of, you know, product and availability is, you know, pretty, pretty big in Vancouver. So that's, you know, number one, why, uh, you know, a lot of retail stores haven't, haven't opened up and the market hasn't grown as fast as, you know, most people would think. And then I think the second reason is the way they set up their uh, licensing, licensing procedure. So it's pretty different uh, over there from Ontario. So I believe in Vancouver and BC, 
the town or municipality also is able to weigh in on the decision of a, if a cannabis store can open up or not. So if you're not, you know, close with or, you know, if the town isn't really cannabis friendly, um, then, you know, it's going to be very challenging for you to open up a store out there. And from a business point of view, the risk is a lot higher that, you know, you start building a store, you get a lease, and then you go through this licensing process. Then near the end, the, you know, the town says, you know what, we don't, we don't want a cannabis store there, or, you know, we think there's too many, so you're not going to get a license. Right. So that's pretty prohibitive for businesses to try and open up over there. And then when it comes to Ontario, I think part of the challenge was, uh, you know, the distribution system. So the government is in charge of distribution over here. So it's kind of a, you know, you're going back and forth between one body that gives you the license, but then you need the other body to, you know, have their distribution facility uh, working in order to actually get the product. So, you know, if in, then, then if you actually look at a place like Saskatchewan, so in Saskatchewan, another province in Ontario, in Canada, uh, you're able to, the retailers are able to actually buy directly from the licensed producer. So over there, it's much more beneficial and much easier for a store to uh, you know to open up and get licensed as well as get volume discounts so if you have 10 stores and you're buying from one producer you can get a much larger discount than you know in a place like Ontario where you know if you have one store or 100 stores you're still paying the same price and then going back to Ontario again in terms of licensing uh, we did have the two lottery pr uh, processes so you know there's a lottery for 25 stores that open and another lottery for uh, 50 stores and then they opened it up after that to uh, the first come first serve process. So they are rolling out uh, now, they increased the number of licenses they're issuing about two months ago. Uh, so they're issuing about 30 licenses per week right now. So I think in the next year, we're probably gonna be at uh, well over a thousand um, stores that are licensed. I believe right now there's a little over 600 um, stores that are licensed and then of of the 600, there's probably, I'd say about 70 to 80% are actually open. And then there's probably like a hundred that are, um, you know, in either, you know, not gonna open or still in the process of opening up. They just have their license but haven't actually opened. So the, you know, the ramp up is pretty significant in Ontario. And then obviously due to COVID, you know, people who wanted to open up 10 stores are probably now thinking about they're only gonna, you know, open up five stores just because of, you know, I think their their revenue forecasts were a lot higher uh, pre-COVID than obviously obviously now. Yeah. So we left off. We were just talking about you thinking that there was going to be a reduction in the number of store counts because of the anticipation of higher revenues from stores is probably also coupled in with uh, excessive costs of goods and an increase in capital expenses that maybe weren't uh, thought of initially. Um, but I'm wondering where you think that might turn with potential mergers and acquisitions. I've been saying on the podcast for a while that there's going to be a lot of consolidation and or capitulation for companies that don't want to, but have to. We've already seen Tilray and Afria, Hexo acquired Zenibus, Fire and Flower acquired the friendly uh, stranger chain of retail stores, and Flyer acquired Terrace Global. I'm assuming that's just the beginning of it, um, especially if... U.S. federal legalization happens, and we're already growing for a dollar thirty. Canada seems to be growing around six dollars. It's going to have to be some changes and/or mergers. What's what's your take on that? Yeah, I definitely agree. I think we've seen a lot of large deals happen lately, and then looking at retail 
closely like there's a lot of especially in Ontario there's a lot of like mom and pop type of cannabis retailers that own like one to two stores and it's kind of tricky because going through the sale process already myself um, the AGCO Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario they need to approve all of these transactions so the timeline can end up being over a year for some of these transactions to be approved and the legal fees you know in time you have to wait ends up really weighing on some of these deals so for a lot of the retailers who you know have one to two stores who think that they're going to end up selling them i think it's probably unlikely unless you have a lot more stores like i think there's going to be a lot more deals for retailers that have i'd say between like four or five to ten stores or greater but like if you have one to two stores the amount of like legal costs and time and energy put into you know buying two stores changing the name rebranding it just it ends up not even really being worth it unless those stores are, you know, doing really, really well, which is, you know, the, the number of them that are doing really well, like a single store operator is probably very low. So I think there is going to be a lot of consolidation, but like the people who have one to two stores, I don't really think it's going to, you know, I don't really think they're going to get a lot of offers to, to end up buying them up. Yeah. I think there's also a lot of uh, excessive, um, stories out there right now MedMen, for example their market cap was ridiculously high um so that had to come back down to to reality um but within a lot of these stores we're kind of seeing maybe the rise of value brands so you know i kind of have said um which i don't know it seemed controversial i guess that brands didn't matter people were going in asking what the highest thc was when they're going into any of these stores and then finding out what fits their price point now i think post vape gate and uh, everything else now that the stores have been open in, in existing markets, people are finding out what brands they like at what price points. Are you seeing through, um, you know, Cannabis Express, you know, up in the Ontario area that people are looking for value brands or are they still going towards the, you know, the first product they touched? Uh, what's what's kind of the, the consumption preference up there? Yeah, I think you're correct in terms of people especially in Canada or in Ontario right now not really you know connecting with a lot of the brands like people go into the store right now and I spend a lot of time in you know in different stores and you know customers come in and generally they say hey what's your you know highest THC percentage flower what's new um what's you know what's high in CBD uh I have trouble sleeping at night you have something for sleep or have trouble focusing like something for focus so people are more shopping along those you know they're they're using that as more of a guiding principle for their shopping versus you know asking for a certain brand like sometimes people come in if they have like a you know a certain uh vape device where you buy pods they'll say hey like give me pax pods or um things like that but if you don't have a specific piece of hardware like people just come in and you know tell you how they're feeling and you know they shop that way or hey what's the you know what's the cheapest thing you guys have versus coming in saying oh I want that you know whatever you know x brand product so I think you're right in in that sense um in terms of like value products uh the you know the majority of flour being sold right now especially in Ontario is uh like a value um based products so you know there's there's a lot of you know cheaper products a lot more expensive products looking at the flower category but yeah the, the the value brand you know the cheaper offering is what's taking up most of the market share right now 
but yeah, people, people aren't really connected to, you know, a lot of the brands in Ontario, especially in Canada, especially not yet, at least. Do you have a, a decent grip on what bud tenders are, are buying? Cause they tend to have like a direct access to thousands of SKUs. And what I noticed on 420, when I go to 20 stores on 420 is that 95%, um, that is uh, 19 out of 20 bud tenders said that their favorite product at the moment was flour. They also said two thirds of the favorites of customers was flour. Uh, and I'm wondering, with your earlier comment about concentrate not having a high quality up there, is that the reason that bud tenders aren't really gravitating towards concentrate? Or is it the fact that they're not paid as well to be able to afford that higher price point product? I think it's a bunch of different factors. Like for example, in Canada and Ontario right now, there isn't a lot of um, selection for concentrate. So when we do our ordering, each week we get like a list of all the products that are in stock and then we, we put in our order. So there's not a lot of concentrates um, available. And then obviously like as a retailer myself, I look at, you know, what the bulk of products people are buying and yeah, it still is flour, um, flour and pre-rolls and vape pens. And, you know, you go down to edibles um, and then concentrates um, topicals are, you know, near the, near the bottom. So yeah, we don't, we obviously don't order um, a heavy amount of those just because the bulk of sales is in the flour category still, but obviously looking at more mature markets, like over time, people, you know, are gravitating more towards non-combustible uh, products. So like vape pens and edibles, things like that. So I think it's more so, you know, obviously a matter of time before people end up, you know, smoking less. Um, and then also when, you know, the product categories get more developed and the prices come down, you know, some of those things are more affordable as well. Mm-hmm. So you're taking a look at uh, distribution trends up in Canada with like drinks, I guess, you know, there was a big hype with the $4 billion um, <laughs> investment of Constellation brands up in Canada. And yet all we've seen is Aurora and Canopy write off the tune of one and 3 billion up there and drinks are nowhere to be found. So is that an issue with distribution or is it an issue with just trying to figure out a cost-effective way of infusing uh, beverages? Oh, I think it's a mix of things. Like if you look at, you know, California and other places that have consumption lounges, I think drinks are, you know, more suited to a place where you can, you know, drink it socially. Um, and then obviously in Canada, like those products were introduced later on um, as part of like the 2.0 product offering versus at the very beginning, it was just like flour and, you know, pre-rolls that were, that were sold in stores. So yeah, like, I, I really like the beverages, but it, still does account for a very small percentage of the market and then as well it's you know seasonal as well right like in the summertime you know a lot more people buy drinks um than in the winter time and then also looking at you know what area the store is in like for example you know i had some stores that were north of uh you know north of the major city where i'm at in toronto and you know drinks were selling really well there versus one of my stores um, in a different city right now, drinks aren't, aren't selling as heavy. So it really, really depends on, you know, seasonality as well as, you know, the customers around, around that store. But yeah, drinks, drinks definitely didn't take off as well as, uh, you know, a lot of people thought they would. Unless it's coffee and then it's all year round, whether it's cold brew, <laughs> iced coffee. But you know, what's funny is we don't have coffee up here in Washington. It's too expensive. You go to Portland and it's available in small, small batch sizes. Like infused, infused coffee? Yeah, grab and go. I'm not talking about K-Cup because if you're a coffee snob, that's not real coffee. I'm talking about like real coffee. Oh, um, nice. 
So yeah, if you have a cold brew or anything like that available in Portland, but not here at the home of, of Starbucks, because again, it's just too expensive for an in-state, um, you know, uh, manufacturing process, it's going to require going across state lines, the ability that you have up in Canada, albeit a smaller market, at least you're able to kind of grab, grab the whole market, whereas here, it's just too expensive to, to try and do that. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So cannabis markets, let's look at some crystal ball predictions, take a look at um, uh, headsets, total sales in the US and Canada and see what will happen uh, moving down the line. So from the US and Canada, looking at, um, in terms of estimated annual sales volume, obviously, I mean, with the help of California, that pretty much skews everything, fifth largest GDP in the world down there in Cali. Um, but you know, Canada, it, it, not too, not too bad. Looking at maybe like five, what is that? Five billion, maybe uh, next year. Yeah. So the market, obviously, yeah, California is obviously the biggest, biggest marketplace in the world for cannabis. Yeah, Canada is, you know, not, not that far off in terms of, I guess, comparing to California when the populations are pretty, right. pretty similar to each other. Yeah, that is kind of funny that the all of Canada is trying to catch up to California. But in terms of how much they're going to grow, Canada is going to account for about 32% of the estimated annual sales growth. Um, so sales growth, not how much they're going to actually grow. <laughs> interesting if they were going to go 32% of all of the, the cannabis, but it looks like their sales growth. That's not too bad. If they can get some international exports, it seems like... Canada is being a little bit um, on the, the protection side, not allowing imports from Colombia. Uh, I think that's going to stifle the market a little bit. So as soon as they can kind of open it up, allow for some more exports to Germany, uh, assuming they can get some higher quality concentrate and flour, whatever else they're allowed to export to places like Israel and Germany, that could help out Canada substantially. Yeah, it's just tricky, obviously, you know, if we allowed importing from places like Colombia and Mexico where their cost of growing is you know significantly lower than here in Canada would really affect the domestic market but in terms of exporting um, you know I've seen I've seen there's there's some deals that are going on for you know places like Israel where companies in Canada are exporting uh, cannabis for you know for research and other purposes but yeah, I don't really think we're going to be a you know world leader in exporting cannabis I see probably Canada more is an exporter of, you know, knowledge, growing practices, um, products, brands, things like that versus actually exporting cannabis. Like there are probably better places in the world to, you know, to grow cannabis than in, than in Canada. Yeah, I would agree with that. You guys just had a, a big 420 up there. Uh, what did you see from, um, from Cannabis Express? Was it still majority flower? We kind of talked about that a little bit, but are you seeing more folks um, trying different stuff, even though the quality of maybe concentrate isn't where it should be? Or is flower still dominating 420 sales? Yeah, 420 was a big day. It was still dominated, I guess, at least in my stores um, in flower, but um, average basket size went up. People bought more products. Um, it was our biggest sales day so far on 420. So it's always a always a good sales day, but then um, we're still restricted here in Ontario in regards to customers not being allowed to come into the store, um, which is unfortunate. So, you know, sales like, for, you know, for products like accessories are, you know, down way lower than what they usually are. If, you know, customers are allowed in store, like no one's curbside 
you know, going curbside pickup to buy like a, a bong or like a dab rig. Those are, you know, usually products that people need to, you know, buy in store and, you know, talk to the right. people who work in the store to learn about them. But yeah, it's still a big sales day um, for 420. But yeah, mostly, you know, dominated by flour as well. What if somebody doesn't go online and pre-order? What What's the options? Because with uh, Arizona right now, they have the same issue. You can't go in the store, but they don't have anything online. So you're literally like looking at a black and white menu with no pictures and you can't look at it before you buy it. So if you were to buy a vape cart, for example, which is $80 down there because it's just opened up as a rec market. So incredibly expensive. Uh, then they put in a childproof bag. So you're not even ensured that they put everything you bought that's in there, which happens a lot. People forget to put stuff in. And then you get home, whatever you open it up and you look and your vape cart is brown or just something nasty. Oh, that's uh, the worst. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So anything like that up there? Um, I think the you know, obviously the odds of, you know, mispacking an item for a customer is is greater when, you know, you just hand someone a bag and then they leave. Um, which is, you know, obviously unfortunate as a, as a customer, you get home and it's, you know, it's the wrong item or it's, you know, spoiled or, or whatnot. And obviously as a retailer, if you have employees giving out, you know, the wrong items or extra items and it's not good for the business. So yeah, those things are all obviously not, not good when it's curbside pickup only, but at least it's, you know, obviously a little bit better than how you mentioned in, in Arizona, where you're just looking at this, you know, menu with no pictures on, in Ontario, you can, uh, you know, people can buy online through the website or they can just show up at the door, you know, they pull out their phone, they put in the order and then they can, you know, call in and talk to someone, ask them a couple of questions if they need to. Um, but it's still, yeah, the interaction is, you know, very, very different. It's, you know, tough on retailers as well because you can't really upsell a product when it's curbside pickup. Like you're, you know, it's the same thing. Like if you, you know, order groceries online, like you're not really buying a lot of those impulse items. You're really just buying the essentials, what you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes all the world a difference if you can actually see it online and know what it looks like. Uh, I, I can't imagine just buying something in Arizona off a of black and white, you know, menu and not even knowing beforehand. Um, yeah, unless you've already tried it before and it's something you, you know, brand or product that you, you know, know and trust. But a lot of the customers are like first time purchasers, right? Or they're buying an item that they never bought before. So definitely, definitely tough, tough for them. Mm -hmm. What did you see as a companion to flower? You said flower is still majority purchase on 420. Did you see any random or not random, but what was like the number one companion to flower? Yeah, just flower pre-rolls. People are buying um, wide assortment of pre-rolls. So like single pre-rolls, um, those, those were big. And then, you know, edibles come next and then going down concentrates. But yeah, topicals, no one's really buying a, uh, topicals as well that's another tough product for curbside pickup like a lot of people aren't buying that curbside pickup only as well because it's another product that's usually priced you know fairly fairly high especially in Ontario like a you know a small jar can run you between like you know 40 to like 80 90 100 dollars Canadian so mm. that's an expensive item that you know drops in sales as well for you know when it's curbside only which is unfortunate but yeah it's, you know flour than pre-rolls vapes um and then edibles. On a 420, when I went to one of the 20 stores, uh, I was in a blue collar area in, in South Seattle called Tacoma. And, um, you know, a trucker community. So one of the stores said that their number one product was uh, topicals. I was really surprised by that. But I guess maybe kind of makes sense in that neighborhood. I still think they're doing it wrong, though. Topicals That's interesting. 
should not be your number one if you're selling cannabis and flour. Uh, I just think yeah, it's kind of, it sounds kind of strange. I guess I guess it depends on who their who their customers are. Maybe they're just stocking a lot of a lot of topicals. But I've never I've never heard that before that a store number one seller is no. topicals. It's interesting. No, I've been doing that for five years, and that was the first time. And so my immediate response is, you guys are doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it looks like category share in Canada, like you said, 55% um, is flour. And then, you know, one out of five approximately is a pre-roll, um, which is interesting. And then behind that is vape pens at 13%. So yeah, y'all are not buying concentrate up there at all. So it must be some brown poop soup up there. <laughs> yeah, it's just, that's, that's just the last product category to really, really get developed. So yeah, it'll, it'll take, it'll take time, but I, that category will go up. It'll, you know, I, I see Canada is probably being, you know, pretty aligned with how California is right now in terms of product mix. Yeah. But like people, you said, you gotta have value in there. You're not going to buy nasty stuff at a really high price. So until you can get the quality to be somewhere that's acceptable no one's going to buy it. But once they figure that out, it's going to go parabolic, like a hockey stick, just like a cryptocurrency, you know, it's <laughs> straight, straight to the moon uh, in terms of, um, you know, growth, sales growth. Oh yeah. Yeah. Those product categories will have, will have big growth, especially once, you know, consumption's permitted, which yeah. hopefully will happen in the next, you know, couple of years. Um, you know, beverages and things like that will, will increase as well. Yep. What else are you anticipating? You know, are you going to be expanding any of your stores with uh, cannabis express? Are you going to be uh, trying to, to be vertically integrated with the producer processor? I mean, what's, what are your plans for 2021 and beyond? Yeah, so the plan for this year is to get up to 10 stores open. So I'm just focused on expanding, opening up stores, and then looking at different formats for stores. So one of the locations I have right now, the plan is to make it pickup only. So I'm looking at certain uh, geographic areas that have a high concentration of stores and then trying to open up a pickup only location um in those areas and then just you know obviously the costs are a lot lower when you have you know one two people working at a pickup only spot there's mm-hmm. you know the location's in good shape you don't really have to put any money into into building it out you just need to you know buy the you know shelves and things like that that you need inside the store signage things like that outside so the plan for that is you know if i'm able to undercut my competitors because you know my costs and you know my operational costs are a lot lower than theirs so pick a few pickup only locations I'm trying to get open, um, you know, as part of the 10 store mix. And then also potentially looking at uh, creating our own branded products. But so right now you'd have to, in Ontario and Canada, you'd have to get, um, you either get licensed yourself if you want to, you know, make your own products. So that's, I don't want to be a grower. I don't want to be a, you know, manufacturer. I'd rather just, you know, hire a grower or a manufacturer to, you know, create my own products. Yeah. So I think probably once we have at least five stores open, then I'll start exploring um, getting someone else to contract manufacture our own branded products. I'll just look, you know, see what's selling in the store, if, you know, a certain, you know, pre-roll or a certain strain or whatever is selling, you know, really well. Then I'll look at, okay, who produces this? How much can they, you know, produce it for me for? And then I'll start, you know, having my own branded products in store, but the minimum order quantities for a lot of those products is pretty high. So I, I doubt you'll see, you know, one store operators selling their own, their own products, unless it's like a, you know, a grinder, like a lighter zigzag, things like that, they can get branded, but for your own product, you really need, um, you know, 
bunch of stores before it, it makes financial sense. So this year, the plan is just get as many stores open as possible, ideally 10, um, you know, a mix of the curbside only pickup stores and um, like in-store shopping, and then look at introducing our own branded products from, you know, certain categories like flower pre-rolls that are, that are doing well. Is your strategy for reducing um, overhead expenses, does, can that include vending machines and or drone delivery? Oh, here you can't do that. Yeah, no, there, I know in, sorry, I know in California, I was looking at that a while ago, vending machines, but yeah, you can't, you can't have any vending machines unless they're like, I think you could have it, but it would have to be in store. So the person would have to, you know, have their ID check, they'd get into the store and then, you know, you could potentially maybe have a vending machine, but you know, it's kind of pointless. I think it's a waste of space to have that. And then obviously for for delivery right now, we're only temporarily allowed to do delivery just because of all the, the lockdowns. Mm. So I think they'll probably, you know, take delivery away eventually and then have to update the rules because it was something that was implemented fairly quickly just because of, of all the lockdowns. But yeah, drone delivery, that could be something hopefully potentially in the future, but obviously you still need to, you know, verify ID and, you know, and all that. But have you, have you seen that anywhere else, drone delivery or people working on it? Not with cannabis, cannabis, not for cannabis. No, I've seen some golf courses do um, like alcohol drone delivery on the golf course, but uh, not. That's very cool. That's very cool. With your access to capital up in Canada, it's it's federally legal, and so I mean, tell me a little bit about the process for expanding ten stores. Is that a friends and family around something that we would traditionally have down here in the U.S.? Or are you actually going to banks for a loan, or do you have to go to a company like IIPR and do a sale leaseback option? How does it work? Yeah, it's like it really depends on you know what I guess what vertical you're in. So banks right now, um, there's only a couple you know banks that that deal with cannabis companies out here, and then there's some credit unions. But it is pretty challenging to get a, a bank loan unless you're, you know, a publicly traded company. Um, so that's probably off the table for most private operators. Um, for me personally, for for my business, it's more of like a friends and family round. So it was, you know, a small group of shareholders that, you know, all put in all put in money. Um, in terms of the IRPR, like a sale leaseback, those are more suited towards like, you know, large scale like cultivation facilities. Like I haven't seen any sale leasebacks for um, for retail as of yet it's mostly like manufacturing and cultivation and most of those companies that end up doing them are also publicly traded companies mm-hmm. um, and then I guess generally speaking in regards to you know access to capital you see most of the U.S. cannabis companies um, are listed on the exchange here just because of the the rules with banking and and all that in the U.S. but there you know there are companies that are just waiting to uplift and you know get off the Canadian security securities exchange and enlist in the U.S. just because there's, you know, a lot more, a lot more money, a lot more volume um, that can be done for their, for their stock if they can, if they can list in the U.S. So I think eventually, you know, when you guys change some of your, your banking laws, uh, you know, a lot of the companies won't really need to list in Canada. They'll just list over and over in the U.S. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So um, are you currently looking for, for investors? Not, not currently. Like, I think like we, we should be, we, we should be able to get up to 10 stores with the amount of cash that we have. And then obviously, you know, the stores should generate enough free cash flow to then continue expansion. But if we did need any cash, we would most likely just go to our current investor pool and everyone could, you know, 
put in additional money if they needed to. But yeah, we're not we're not really looking for for outside investors right now, just because you know we have enough cash to get our stores open. We don't really we don't really need that at this point in time. But obviously, you know, if, if the right person came around who had a mix of cash and expertise, then we would um, we would entertain it. But I'm not actively out there looking uh, to raise money right yeah. now. It's a nice position to be in. There's a lot of, a lot of people down here in the U.S. who would love to be in that that position. Yeah, raising money, it just, it, you know, it's a full-time job <laughs> raising money and, you know, getting all the legal documents done. So, it, you know, it, it takes a while and then it really distracts you from actually running the business. So it's good to, you know, get that out of the way and have enough cash to, you know, actually execute on the plan. I, I hear that from from every single person that raises capital is it's a full-time job. That's all you do. And it distracts you from from everything else. So yeah, exactly. Um, on you for, for recognizing that and focusing on what matters, which is uh, generating some revenue and expanding, scaling, uh, all of that good stuff. So, um, you know, over the last hour, we've covered a lot. Is there anything that we left out that you'd like to to uh, cover right now? Yeah, I think we covered, you know, some some good topics, obviously. You know, there's a lot of differences between, you know, U.S. businesses and Canadian businesses. And hopefully I gave a good overview of, you know, how everything is in Canada and Ontario and specifically in regards to retail. But, you know, the things change pretty quickly. Obviously, you know, once the lockdowns end, stores are going to open and, you know, the markets will be, you know, different in terms of, you know, being able to raise money and expand and, you know, strategies for, for different operators. So the markets do change very quickly. So we should, uh, you know regroup in, in six months and see how everything's going. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to catching up and uh, seeing what the Canadian market is doing. Maybe at that point, they'll actually buy buying some concentrates. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. I want to thank my guest, Chris Jones. He's the founder of Cannabis Ex, uh, Express uh, up in the Ontario area. Chris, thanks for being on the Talking Hedge. Great. Thanks a lot, Josh. Yeah, I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. How do cannabis CEOs balance growth and optimization strategies? What is THCO, Delta 10, and CBNA, and why should you care about these minor cannabinoids? And why isn't the endocannabinoid system covered in medical school? Most people think they're up to date in trends in the cannabis industry, but they're about six weeks behind. Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast, and of course, on PodConnects.